Good morning. Good to see all of you here this morning. If you've got a Bible with you, go with me to the book of Romans. We're going to be in Romans chapter 5 today, and it is connected to Genesis, uh, which hopefully you'll see if I've done my job correctly. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you and you'd like to follow along with us, there are Bibles that are in the chair racks there in front of you. And if you are unfamiliar with finding stuff in the Bible, uh, that is okay. The book of Romans and chapter 5 is on page 942 of the Bibles that are there in the, uh, the chair racks there in front of you, if you'd like to follow along with us. <clears throat> In 1993, warning, this is a sports illustration, okay? For those of you who are like, I don't know anything about sports, so you just bear with us here. I hope this still works, even if you don't know sports. But back in 1993, the University of Michigan was once again playing in the national championship game for college basketball. The year before that, they had fielded one of the most celebrated recruiting classes that any school had ever been able to gather. And they did something that uh, not very many schools, if any, had done up to that point. They had that great recruiting class, and they actually started five freshmen for the season. And those five freshmen were actually so good, they called them the Fab Five. Uh, They were so good that they actually took their team to the national championship game, their freshman season. Now, they lost that game, but the Fab Five changed basketball. They brought a a new flavor to basketball. I was in high school at the time, so I remember this. Uh, They gave us uh, a couple of contributions to basketball. One is they wore black socks, and nobody was wearing black socks. And we thought that was the coolest thing in the world. And so even my rural Ohio basketball team at my school, we wore black socks uh, because of that. Another thing which is beneficial to all of us is they ushered in the era of baggy shorts. And we can be thankful for that if you've ever seen pictures from the 70s and the 80s. Uh, Nobody needed that. And so uh, they brought in baggier shorts for us. In 1993, after this difficult loss their freshman year, they find themselves once again in the national championship game for college basketball. With 20 seconds left in that game, Michigan is down by two. With 20 seconds left, Chris Weber, who went on to play in the NBA, he's in the Basketball Hall of Fame now, gets the rebound and decides that he is, even though he's the center, is going to bring the ball up the court himself with 20 seconds left on the clock, down by two. So there's this feeling of inevitability that's going along as he's working his way up the court because this is, this is their year. Everybody knows the Fab Five's going to break up. They're going to go to the NBA. This is, if they don't do it now, they're never going to do it. And their star player, Chris Weber, is bringing the ball up the court. He crosses half court. And he gets two defenders that work a trap on him. This is where it gets kind of sportsy, for those of you who aren't sports. But they they work him all the way into the corner and trap him. So he holds the ball, and with 11 seconds left, Chris Weber calls timeout. 
And you would think that this is a good thing because there's 11 seconds left on the game clock. They're on their side. They can go back to the bench. Their coach can draw up a play. And Michigan can either tie and send it to overtime or they can hit a three or get fouled or something and they can actually win the national championship for the Fab Five. And all of that would have been absolutely a great plan except for one problem. That one problem, which some of you are smiling at me because you know what it is, that one problem is Michigan didn't have any timeouts left. And when you call a timeout, when there's no timeouts left, the referees do not say, hey, that is an easy mistake to make. Anyone could have done it. No, the other team is awarded free throws. And that, caught, that, that break uh, led to Michigan losing that championship game uh, for a second time in a row. And for the Fab Five breaking up, they went on to the NBA and to other things. But I want you to imagine with me something that did not happen, but I just want you to imagine this with me for a moment. Imagine that you are one of the players on the, the Michigan team, and you're at the press conference. You've got cameras clicking and a microphone in front of you, and, and the reporters are asking you questions, and they're asking you things like, you know, how do you feel in this loss? You know, the second year in a row, this has probably got to hurt, especially the way it happened. And what would we think if the, if the other players said, well, I didn't lose. We didn't lose the game. And the reporter looked at them somewhat uh, uh, strangely and said, well, well, why do you think you didn't lose? And the player said, well, I didn't call the timeout. I, that wasn't me. <laughs> that was Chris. <laughs> uh, I, I actually don't feel like I lost the game. <laughs> we would think that person was a little crazy because we all understand that in team sports, what one member does, whether good or bad, has an impact on the entire team because one player called a timeout when there were no timeouts left, the whole team lost. And the reverse of that is true, right? Have you ever been watching your team? Don't worry, sport, unsports people. We're going to get off the sports real soon. But just imagine for a, for a moment that you are watching your favorite team. Have you ever been watching your favorite team and it's coming down to the wire and and somebody throws a touchdown pass with no time left to win the game, or somebody hits a jumper in basketball with, no, with the time expiring and you win the game, and one of the things that you might do is jump up off the couch and just be screaming and running around the house, we won! You didn't win. Your fingers are covered in nachos. You didn't do anything to win that game. But you feel like you won because the actions of one player hitting that jump shot caused the entire team to win the game, the entire fan base to feel like they won. Well, for the past few weeks, we have been looking at Genesis chapter 3, and I promise that what we're going to talk about today, even though we're not in the book of Genesis, is very directly connected to the events of Genesis chapter 3. In Genesis chapter 3, we see that the first pair of humans, Adam and Eve, disobey God. And we spent some time talking about both the immediate and far-reaching consequences of Adam's sin. 
But today, what I want to do is I want to explore that a little bit more because the New Testament gives us theological reflections about Genesis 3. As the New Testament often does, it, it teases out for us and explains in more details events that have happened in the past. And I want to warn you today, there's a lot of stuff to talk about. And so I'm going to encourage you to try to stay with me because we're going to try to fit a ton of stuff into a really small amount of time, but I hope you can see why we're doing that by the time we get to the end. There are two main spots of theological reflection on the fall. One of those is found in Romans chapter 5, and the other is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And so what we're going to do together this morning is I'm going to read that section of Romans chapter 5 with us in its entirety, verses 12 to 21, and then we'll supplement, we'll, we'll dip into to 1 Corinthians 15 at various times to see what it has to say about the matter. But let's, let's prepare to read God's Word, let's pay attention to all of it, let's try to load it in, and then let's do some reflections on it. Here's what the Word of God says in Romans chapter 5, beginning in verse 12. The Bible says, therefore, just a sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of God, uh, by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. <coughs> now the law came in <clears throat> to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might, might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. You will notice there that there is a contrast taking place in Romans chapter 5, right? It's a very clear contrast because the Apostle Paul who wrote this keeps saying, on the one hand, on the other hand, the one man, the other man. And what, what, he's, what he's drawing is a line in the middle and doing a comparison between Adam and Jesus Christ. The first Adam is, as Romans chapter 5 and verse 14 says, a, a type, 
A type in the Bible is a person, place, or thing that anticipates something coming in the future. It is the foreshadowing of a greater reality, whether that be a person, place, or thing. And the Bible tells us that Adam is a type who anticipates and foreshadows a second Adam, Jesus Christ. Now, as we're talking today, we're gonna, I'm going to throw out some theological terms to you that will hopefully you can put in your hip pocket and, and use when you are reading other books or articles uh, you'll understand they're talking about. But each atom, you can see here, is a representative, right? Did we see that as we were reading through it? Each atom, first and second, are representatives of a group of people. They are what theologians sometimes refer to as a federal head. Now, that's not a term that's in the Bible. It's a term that theologians use to describe what's going on here between the first and second atoms. They are federal heads. They are representatives of a group of people. And the Bible teaches us this truth that I want us to see this morning. Each one of us is represented by either the first or the second Adam. Every person in here, without exception, every person that ever has existed on planet Earth, does exist or will exist on planet Earth, can be divided into two main categories, those who are represented by the first Adam and those represented by the second. A theologian by the name of A.W. Pink once said this, the relationship of our race, and is using the term race to speak of the human race, that's not an ethnic category, the relationship of our race to Adam or Christ divides men into two classes, men and women into two classes, each receiving nature and destiny from its respective head. All the individuals who comprise these two classes are so identified with their heads that it has been justly said, there have been but two men in the world and two facts in history. These two men are Adam and Christ. The two facts are the disobedience of the former, by which many were made sinners, and the obedience of the latter, by which many were made righteous. By the former came ruin. By the latter came redemption. We want to use these two categories of ruin and redemption to do a contrast between the first or second Adam today that we are all represented uh, by one or the other. And I want us to, in the first place this morning, examine together the ruinous representation of the first Adam. The ruinous representation of the first Adam. And I want us to see from Romans chapter 5 and supplemented with 1 Corinthians 15 that there are three consequences that come to us that all of us experience right now because of the ruinous representation of this first Adam. Here's the first consequence. Sin. Sin. Verse 12, and we're going to, as we walk through these things, we're gonna, I'm going to pull a ton of phrases from these two passages of Scripture, and I'm going to pull these phrases out so quickly 
that it's going to be hard for you to hunt each one of them down. And so I'm going to have all of them on the screen behind me. You can highlight, note, do whatever it is that you want. I just want you to know that we're going faster than most of us can find, which is why they're on the screen behind me. Verse 12 says that sin entered the world through one man. Now, if you've been with us, then you will remember that Adam has the sacred responsibility of guarding this Garden of Eden, which the Bible takes care to present to us as a sort of temple. The Garden of Eden is a place where God's presence dwells, and Adam, as a priest of sorts, has a responsibility, as the priests who would follow him did, he had a responsibility to maintain the holiness of that sacred space. But does Adam do that? No. The answer is no. He fails to guard the holiness of this space. And verse 19 of Romans 5 tells us that by the one man's disobedience, many were made sinners. Because of Adam's action, because his, of his representative actions, that day, each one of us is born sinner. Our Father Adam passes along to us his sinful DNA, so to speak, so that each one of us is, is born a sinner before we have ever committed an evil act. Now, I recognize that for some of us, that may be a, what are you talking about and what kind of church have I stumbled into? So I just want to encourage you to hear me out because hopefully what I'm saying is in line with what the Bible says in these passages of Scripture. But most of us have seen car commercials. And in these car commercials, you see this beautiful car, truck, SUV, whatever. And they're panning across the instrument panel and they're showing you all the features of this car. And I'm seeing cars now where they show the person actually get in the back seat, and the back seat reclines all the way, and a footrest comes down from the, the front seat for them to put their feet on, and I'm thinking, that's great, but in what circumstances are we going to do that? Uh, but apparently, that's a thing that people want to do, and great. Uh, my, my, my vans don't do that. Um, but you see this car commercial, and when the price finally comes up, you're like, huh, that's actually not bad for what I just saw. But there's an issue there. There's fine print under that that says uh, the vehicle shown in the commercial costs way more than the price that we just showed you because there's stuff that comes standard on that car and then there's everything else. And so when you're at the car dealership, it's like, would, would you like seats? Because that's going to be more. I want the one from the commercial that had that big number price. That's what I want. It doesn't work like that. There's stuff that comes standard on cars that you can just walk in and, and buy. Every one of those models have it. And there's something that comes standard on every human being without exception. Even that cute little bundle of joy you hold. They are sinners. And I'm sorry to tell you. We are sinners by nature. Now, the fact that we are born sinners does not mean that 
all we ever do is sin, that we're as bad as we could possibly be, or that we are not capable of doing that which is good or beautiful. To say otherwise would be to do damage to the doctrine of the image of God in whom we have all been created. What it does mean, though, is that we are not sinners because we sin. The prevailing idea is that I, I, I come out and I, I get off the blocks in life and stuff happens, my environment's bad, uh, my family of origin story is bad, there's this and that, and all of those things are major factors in our behavior. There's no doubt about it. But at the end of the day, I didn't become a sinner because I made the decision at some point in my early growing up years to commit my first sin. I remember when I was a little kid thinking, man, if I'd only known like, the consequences of the first sin, I, I would have tried a lot harder not to do it. I didn't understand that, biblically speaking, we are not sinners because we sin. We sin because we are sinners. We sin because that is an outworking of our nature that we received from our first father. And this insidious infection of sin touches all of us. There is a second consequence that I want to highlight from the ruinous representation of this first Adam. That is death. In Romans chapter 5 and verse 12, we see again that sin came into the, into the world through one man and death through sin. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15, many died through the one man's trespass. Verse 17, death reigned through that one man. Verse 21 says that sin reigned in death. Are you picking up a pattern here? Death it's a consequence of sin and the work of the first Adam. And 1 Corinthians 15 tells us the same thing. Verse 21, by a man came death. The next verse, 22, in Adam all die. Sin always brings death. Romans chapter 3 and verse 23 calls uh, death, the wages of sin. We, we earn the paycheck of, sin, uh, uh, of death through our sin. What the serpent promised Adam and Eve in the garden was that, that you can have something that God has withheld from you. There is something in you that you can unlock. There is a way for you to level up as a human being in this game that we're in that God has not told you about, but I'm going to give you the cheat code. You just have to do this, and, and you don't have to be content to be, be, to be being made in God's image and likeness. You can actually come really close to being God. And I didn't want to say this, but he's afraid of that. What happens? Satan's promises are a lie. Rather than the promises coming true that he has made, death comes to them, and it has been that way ever since. And we sing a song called, All I Have is Christ, and one of the lines that we sing from that song is, the sin that promised joy and life has done what? 
It's led me to the grave. Okay, we understand that sin holds out the promise, if I, can, if I can be the captain of my own ship, the maker of my own fate, the, 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 uh, the, the, the leader of my own destiny, if I can do what I want in my way as a human being in life, then I can have joy and satisfaction and fulfillment and all sorts of things. And when we swallow that lie, the wages of that lie, the thing that we reap is death. What promised joy in life actually leads us to the grave. And you and I understand through our own experience, the experience of living is an experience of dying. It is the seeing of death all around us and the losing of people and to experiencing the effects of death in our own bodies. And this is because of the ruinous representation of the first Adam. There's a third consequence that I want to share with you. Okay, we're getting dark right now. The third consequence of the first Adam is condemnation. Verse 16 of Romans chapter 5 tells us that the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. And we might be with them for a moment and say, yep, it brought condemnation on Adam, but the Bible has something additional to tell us because this condemnation is not just for Adam. Verse 18 says that the one trespass led to condemnation for who? All men. All humanity. Remember Chris Weber's timeout? That timeout has drastic consequences for the whole team. That's what happens here. This failure, Adam's failure to obey God as his representative, brought condemnation not only to himself, but to his whole team, the whole human race. Had Adam obeyed, we would have received the blessings of his obedience. But since he did not, we experience condemnation, which is separation from God. Eternity in a place called hell, which the Bible tells us is a real place and not a metaphor. Separation from God by death, unless there is some kind of intervention, which, praise God, there is. Now, before we move on to talk a little bit about that, let me just note an objection that's probably fluttering through some of our minds. And that is the objection when we, when we hear, encounter something like this in the Bible to say, well, that doesn't sound fair to me. It doesn't sound fair to me that he gets to hold my destiny in his hands, that I, didn't, that I don't have autonomy, that I don't get to make that choice for myself. That's a, that's a real question. That's a valid question for us to ask, and we could talk at length about it. While we, if we're going to say that this isn't fair, and we can't say that this isn't fair because to, to say that this isn't fair would be, mean that God is fundamentally unjust, which the Bible clearly teaches against. But if we were to say that this is not fair for Adam to represent me in this way, then we are also going to have to say that what Christ does to represent us as the second Adam is not fair and that we should not be the recipients of these blessings. And so I want us to turn and look now. We've been looking at the ruinous representation of the first Adam, but I want us to see now 
In the second place, the redemptive representation of the second Adam. The redemptive representation of the second Adam. You and I can't see how good Christ's work is if we don't see, descend into the depths of the ruin that the Bible says that we are in apart from Christ. We have to go and look at that darkness to see the glory of the light. And the Bible tells us about the redemptive representation of the second Adam and as we've been looking at in uh, Romans chapter 5. And I want to bring up three consequences from his representative work that is contrasted with the consequences of the first Adam. Here's the first one, the first consequence of Jesus' work, righteousness instead of sin. Righteousness instead of sin. Whereas Adam's act of disobedience led to the infection of sin throughout the entire human race, Christ's act of obedience leads to the gift of righteousness for all who will receive it by faith. And we can see this in verse 16 where the Bible says, the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 17 holds out the promise of the free gift of righteousness. Verse 18 says, one act of righteousness leads to justification for all men. Verse 21 says, grace also might reign through righteousness. Now, just in rattling off that quick, quick uh, set of verses, and I told you we're going we're gonna to run through them really fast, but just in rattling off, that off, you can see that there is a connection between righteousness and justification. They're almost used interchangeably throughout this passage, and in fact, they are closely related. Basically, one is a verb and one is a noun. They share the same Greek root word. Justification, for those of you who might not remember, is a declarative act whereby God imputes, remember we're using fancy words today, whereby God imputes, He assigns, He credits our sin to Christ and credits Christ's righteousness to us. Now, maybe you've heard that before, and maybe you haven't, but let's just pause on that for a minute to note the wonder of it. The realization of the doctrine of justification, the realization that, that God would impute, that He would credit our sin to Christ, and that God would credit Christ's righteousness to us, is something that changed the, that started something called the Protestant Reformation. Martin Luther called this the glorious exchange. And if we were to think about it in financial terms, you might be able to think about it this way. You are born in debt, and then you spend your whole life racking up more debt. So that by the time you reach the end of your life, your financial uh, situation is in absolute shambles. Then on the other hand, we have Christ. Christ, perfectly righteous, perfectly pure, the sinless God-man, second person of the Trinity, Son of God, He takes on human flesh. And then He proceeds to live His life, every step of every day, in perfect righteousness. 
And we hear that a lot. So he was a toddler who was perfectly righteous. I don't think you're hearing me. <laughs> he went through middle school. Perfect righteousness. Every opportunity that's placed in front of him to sin in word, in thought, or deed, not one time does he ever capitulate to sin. He lives a life of perfect righteousness. And then, listen to what he does. God takes that life of perfect righteousness and he imputes it to our account. He credits it to our account so that the life of death that we have racked up and racked up and racked up, God no longer acts with us on our debt. He acts with us, he acts towards us with a perfect account of Christ's righteousness. That's great news. But not only does he choose to act for us on account of Christ's perfect righteousness, but all the debt that we've sinned, that we have racked up, the wages of sin and the debt that we've racked up our whole life, he then imputes that to Christ. And he gives us the blessings of Christ's righteousness, and he pours out his wrath on the perfect Son who's had our unrighteousness imputed to his account. Is that not a glorious exchange? Think about the sinfulness of your own heart and life and how you deserve to be treated by God. And he poured all of that out on his son. This is the glorious exchange. Our sin for Christ's righteousness. And friend, if you are in Christ, if you have put your faith in Christ, you are absolutely bulletproof. Because Christ's righteousness is perfection. There are no holes anywhere. There's a second consequence that we get from the redemptive representation of the second Adam, and it is life instead of death. Christ's actions lead both to a present experience of life that we had not yet known and the future hope of eternal life that we can only imagine. Verse 17 sets the contrast up nicely. It says, if because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Verse 18 says that Christ's act of righteousness leads to life for all men. Verse 21 says that righteousness, that righteousness leads to eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. The Bible says the same thing in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, 
Verses 21 and 22, where it says, For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all shall be made alive. In Adam all die. Spiritual death, physical death, eternal separation from God. But in Christ we are brought to spiritual life and we are born again. And we have both a present experience of that Christ life in us through His resurrection power and the hope of eternal life that can never be taken from us. An escape from the experience, the constant, day-by-day experience of death, whether it be actual death or just loss and hurt and pain. Jesus talked about life a lot. He said things like, I have come that they might have life and that they might have it abundantly. Which means that Jesus isn't in the, in the business of giving out a smidge of life to all of us. He's not skimping. He wants us in the midst of death, in the midst of a broken world, even in the midst of our own struggles with sin, to have an experience of life. He has conversations with people like Mary and Martha, which we've, we've talked about, where he looks at them and says, I am the resurrection and the life. He stands up before people and says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. He wants you to live. These are the benefits that come to us from his redemptive representation. There's a third that I want to highlight for you. And that is restoration instead of condemnation. Restoration instead of condemnation. Let me read to you from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, beginning in verse 45. It says, Thus it is written, The first man, Adam, became a living being. The last Adam became a life-giving spirit. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are of the dust. And as is the man of heaven, so also are those who are of heaven. Just as we have borne the image of the man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. We've learned from Genesis that all people were created in God's image and likeness, that we are reflections of Him in finite ways. That image has been damaged but not destroyed by sin. But the truth is that we are not God's representatives on earth the way we ought to be. We have not glorified our Creator as we ought to have done. We do not reflect Him as we were intended to do. We sometimes look more like our father Adam. You might say that the apple doesn't fall far from the tree. That every single one of us, without exception, are bound to the ground. From dust we came, and to dust we will return. 
the work of Jesus on our behalf, the work of justification, it is a declarative act whereby God counts us, declares us righteous based on the work of Christ. But the Bible also tells us that Christ does an experiential work in us whereby we are transformed, whereby we are in the process of being restored. You and I bear the image of the man of dust right now, but friend, if you are in Christ, you bear the image of the man of dust just a little bit less every day. The promise that God gives us is that in the same way we have borne the image of the first Adam, we will bear the image of the second. 1 Corinthians 15 tells us, Behold, I tell you a mystery. And that mystery is that death is going to get swallowed up, enveloped, obliterated by the victory of life. Death gets swallowed up in victory, which is why he says, we're all going to be changed. We live in a world where we have to pray for another shooting. We live in a world that is just damaged by every kind of sin imaginable and things that we can't imagine and wish we didn't know. It feels like a constant swimming upstream. And then you got your own heart to deal with. Why am I this way? And why do I keep being this way? And one of the reasons that this is in the Bible is for your encouragement. Death. And the experiences of this world are one day going to be swallowed up in the victory of Christ. You, me, this whole world is going to be gloriously changed. You yourself are going to be transformed into the image of Christ. I've said this before. I'll say it again. We will stand around God's throne. We will be able to look each other in the eye and say, you look just like Jesus. And that will not be a blasphemous statement because it will be absolutely true. Because that's what Jesus wants. He wants us to be conformed to his image. He began a good work in us, and he will perform it. Which means that we are declared righteous in Christ. We are in the process of being made righteous in our experience. And one day, everything Adam lost, plus more, will be restored. Now, there might be somebody here this morning asking the question, okay, this is wonderful news. How do I receive this righteousness? And the Bible's answer to that question is that we have Jesus as our representative, our redemptive representative by faith and faith alone. 
Many people operate with, with the, the idea that, that we've got some scales, that there's some sort of nebulous understanding of how these scales work, and somehow I'm going to, to, to even out these scales or maybe even have my good outweigh my bad. So, so when I stand before the Lord one day, He says, you know what, I see you. Good work. That was a, that was a good effort. But when you understand what the Bible actually teaches about the nature of our plight as human beings, that we actually are born in sin, that we sin because we are sinners, it's part of our nature, when you start to realize those truths are reality, the idea of us being able to earn God's God's respect or earn God's grace or provide Him with some sort of righteousness becomes totally ludicrous, as it should be. The Bible says that we receive this gift by faith. Romans chapter 3 and verse 22, the righteousness of God through faith. And Jesus Christ, for all who, in case you're not getting it, believe. That's a synonym for faith. So if you're here with us this morning and you have never received the work of Christ by faith, we want you to know that you can receive it by faith this moment where you're sitting in your seat right now. You could turn in faith to Christ and experience, in spite of all you've done, experience grace reigning, ruling in your life. For those of us who are Christians, the good news of this is from Romans chapter 8 and verse 1, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Everything we need, we have, and is freely offered in the work of Christ. We're going to close this morning by singing a song that is, has unfortunately be, been misclassified. Somewhere along the way, somebody made the decision that if something gets classified as a Christmas carol, we're not allowed to sing it anymore if it's not December. And so there's all kinds of good songs that we ought to be singing because they express good things. It doesn't stop being true in December or in January. It's not just good for one month only. And so we are going to be rebels today. We are going to rebel against those rules, and we are going to sing a Christmas carol in May. And we're going to sing this Christmas carol in May because it captures the truths of Genesis 3 and Romans 5 and 1 Corinthians 15 in a really beautiful and special way. And I want to read for you the third verse that we're going to sing together to just give you a little bit of explanation to ease us into it so that you can sing it as loudly and as exuberantly and as joyfully as you can when we get to it. The song is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. And the last verse goes this way. It's it's an appeal. Come, desire of nations, come. That line is brought from the book of Haggai. Fix in us thy humble home. Incarnation. Rise the woman's conquering seed. Remember, we, we saw 
there's going to be enmity, there's going to be strife between the seed of the woman, the descendants of the woman, and the seed of the serpent, the descendants of the serpent. So there's going to be this conflict between these two lines of descendant throughout history, but the, the seed of the woman is going to prevail. Rise, the woman's conquering seed, bruise in us the serpent's head, because sometimes we look more like our father the devil. Bruise in us the serpent's head. Adam's likeness, now efface. That word efface means erase. Because we've borne the image of the man of dust. Stamp thine image in its place. We're going to bear the image of the man of heaven. Second Adam, from above, reinstate us in thy love. Hark, the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king. Let's pray and let's sing that song. Lord, I want to thank you simply for the representation of Jesus Christ, the second Adam, the fulfillment of all the scriptures pointed to. We thank you that he gives us righteousness instead of our sin, life instead of our death, transformation instead of our condemnation. Lord, if there is someone here who does not know Christ in a saving way, would you give them a heart of faith to believe and trust Jesus. For it's in the name of the second Adam we pray. Amen.